So this evening I'm going to have a little fun with some guy trying to, I guess, sharpen his atheistic uh, edge by messaging me on uh, Facebook. I don't know him, but people ask to be my friend, so I can say, okay, now somebody else does it. Utah or somebody else takes care of it, but if they ask, we just accept them. So this guy writes under a secular name, and we'll just go through it and see how I chose to deal with it. I think it can be edifying, interesting. He says, HK Swami, I guess that means Hare Krishna Swami. <laughs> I just had one quick question. <laughs> about the problem of evil as if the problem of evil was a quick question the problem of evil is of course why if God is all good why is there evil in the world which is a question that will always be asked and will be always answered but not ever to the satisfaction of everyone so he says if Krishna Allah etc is the cause of all causes then does that make God a rapist I read an article yesterday about a 10-year-old girl who died as a result of being gang-raped. Supposing that her karma was bad, that would still not be an excuse for permitting such an action to happen. So, is God a rapist? Because God is the cause of all causes, and someone got raped, and so I guess God's a rapist. It's a rather kind of personally childish, um, I think, personally childish kind of childish kind of um, argument and attack. And uh, so I've chosen to take a certain um, approach to answering it. He's looking for all of the typical answers to why there is... um, evil in the world and God is still good and so forth Um, so I write people are responsible for their actions God is not at the same time people cannot accomplish whatever they do without God's sanction people sow seeds of desire God is the rain that enables them to fructify this is what the Gita teaches so there's a the Gita and Vedanta takes what we would call a compatibilist position with regard to determinism and free will. We say there's free will and things are determined. So, if you, God's sanction is required, he's behind everything. He's also behind giving us free will, which makes it dynamic. And, um, while we have that will, um, Without his sanction, it can't be um, realized. Now, that said, um, if you want to talk about God as the metaphysical cause of all causes, then you have to look at rape from a metaphysical perspective. Instead of shifting the ground and calling God a rapist, metaphysically speaking, from our perspective, there is only God expressing himself through his shaktis. Thus one has to step back from the myopic human perspective to make sense out of such anomalies. Do you follow? In other words, if there's only God and God is constituted of himself and his shaktis, there's no one to blame for anything. This is God's doing what he, what he does and it's only a certain perspective that there's somebody to blame. Um, so, Swamiji, how, pray tell, am I supposed to look at rape through a metaphysical perspective? I'm just going to briefly explain that, but is rape an expression of God? Also, you say that God enables people's actions to fructify, which certainly would make God an accomplice in such horrendous actions. Please clarify this as I am confused as to why you think God is not responsible for allowing, in addition to rape, 
of a ten of ten year old girls, the massacre of millions of people in wars, crusades, etc. If, as you say, God is the rain which enables them actions, that is, to fructify. I reply, well, if one has a metaphysical perspective that includes a panentheistic God, panentheistic means that that God is the world, and at the same time God is different from the world. It's kind of a beta-beta perspective as we find in the Gita. Um, the world is all his shaktis, they're not independent of him, so the world is, is God, and at the same time God is separate from the world. So if we have a metaphysical perspective that includes panentheistic God, not pantheistic, but panentheistic, uh, then yes, rape is part of God, but also not part of God at the same time. Is that a problem? That rape is part of God? If it is, perhaps you should not believe in God. It's a problem for you. But that brings up other problems. And this is where I want to really take the argument. So, the choice is which problems you can live better with. That is up to you. Vedanta takes a compatibilist perspective on free agency and determinism. You are free to take a modern scientific deterministic perspective if you like, but then there is not much meaning in complaining about rape, etc. Do you follow? Mm -hmm. To put it another way, you can believe that there cannot be an all-good, all-knowing God because of evil in the world. But that does not do away with the evil in the world or explain it. Why is there rape? Because there are bad people who have free will? If you allow free will, you're not a very well-thought-out atheist. If you don't, your moral concern is ultimately irrational, a mere human construct. Do you understand? So if you, if you don't believe if if you don't believe in um, that there's free agency, free will. Hmm? Free will, free agency means some kind of force that's not measurable and um, arguably not physical. Hmm? Um, so if you're a physicalist and naturalist. Um, as, as he is, then um, there's no room for, for, for free agency, for free will. In other words, there's just uh, atoms, if you will, uh, bouncing into one another. So if that's your worldview, then really, what's the outrage about whether it be rape, or whether it be nursing a child, it's just atoms bumping into one of the, the the moral concern that you have is just some human construct in your head that ultimately has no real bearing or meaning. Hmm? So which do you like better? If you want to say there's no God because there's evil in the world, we haven't done away with the evil. Hmm? And that's like I want to say you may have done away with a considerable impetus to, to deal with evil also, if that's your concern. But besides that, I'm saying atheism, metaphysical naturalism, doesn't provide a lot of impetus, no absolute impetus for moral concern, for justice. You can make up one, but that you just made it up. Do you understand? Whereas, if there's a God, then there's, there's, a, there's a, a reason an absolute reason to pursue good and, and, and the just and so forth as much as God is good. In other words, if moral concern, if there are real moral principles, real means they're absolute, they're ontologically tied. They're not just human construct. You think it's good. I think it's bad. Then there's real compelling impetus 
to be morally righteous. If you want to unplug that and say, it's just atoms bouncing around, then you're really, the honest position is, really, whether somebody gets raped or someone gets, uh, an infant gets raped or gets nursed by your mother, it's just the same, you know, more or less the same thing going on, it's a different combination. So this is the perspective I've, I've taken. Dear Swami, I don't see how that follows. An atheist, or anybody for that matter, can allow free will and at the same time raise the question to the theist as to why a tri-moni, tri-omni, I guess that means, what, omniscient, um, tri-omni, um, omnipotent, 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 omniscient, and omnipresent. Uh, One can allow for free will and at the same time raise the question to the theist as to why the tri-omni deity would allow evil to exist unrestrained. Hume noted that if there was such a tri-omni deity, then why didn't the deity tinker with the minds of people like Nero so that Nero so that thousands of people would have not have suffered. Surely the theist charged that because God loves us, he allows free will to exist is invalid because any definition of love must include concern for the consequences of his action. My reply is that atheism does not acknowledge any supernatural reality beyond the natural world. No God, no soul. That leaves no room for free will because everything happens only by the influence of the laws, of the natural laws. Consciousness is merely brain activity. Thus, and determinism. Thus, ideas of moral responsibility are merely human constructs, a fantasy. Morality has no ontological roots. This conversation is no more meaningful from the absolute perspective than the sound of pool balls colliding, if we go with his world view. The lights are on, but nobody's home. That's what atheism says through it to, it to today's well-known proponents, Dawkins, Hitchens, Harris, etc., as did their atheistic forerunners, Russell, and the like. And there is little meaning, if any, to free will one is not free to do the wrong thing, and choices have consequences, which is worse, freedom to choose the wrong thing and suffer, or no freedom at all. That said, such arguments have no end. One side is psychologically disposed to accept the logic of one side, the other the other side, and the argument has been going on for centuries. You are on one side, I am on the other. I'm not trying to convert you, but you seem to feel the need to convert me. Perhaps you are not aware that this age-old argument is a stalemate. Dear Swamiji, it's not my intention to convert you, rather to discuss the problem of free will in relation to the problem of evil. The fact that such discussions have been going on for centuries really means that it is still relevant. I don't see how one arrives at determinism simply by accepting the existence of natural laws. I know, for example, that if I throw an apple up into the air, the laws of gravity will force the apple to come down. This does not mean that I was not free to throw the apple into the air. I do not want to derail the conversation into a theory of language discussion, but quote-unquote meaning in conversation is something which I find to be quite vague. We know that language is a human construct, so I do not see how your argument follows. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we pass some gas then. Yeah, yeah. Um, that because ideas of moral responsibility are product, product, product of human language, that moral realism, as expounded by atheists, would be impossible. We cannot have language used... We, we, we cannot have objective moral truths in spite of the fact... We can, excuse me, have obje- objective moral truths in spite of the fact that our language used to describe these concepts are subjective. I wouldn't consider Hitchens or Dawkins good examples from the atheist position. 
mainly because uh, neither of them, Hitchens especially, has any philosophical or theological training. J.L. Mackey raised the point that a theist could admit that God is omniscient and thus evade some of the stronger arguments advanced by the non-theist. However, he is noted, as he noted, he, she will still have to explain why a deity with the other two attributes would allow suffering. A tsunami, which killed millions of people, is not the result of someone's free will. I quote him. So I'm, I'm not dealing with all everything he said, but just trying to be consistent in making a particular argument. I quote him, I know, for example, that if I throw an apple into the air, that the laws of gravity will force the apple to come down. This does not mean that I was not free to throw the apple into the air. I reply, what are you? He replies, I beg your pardon? (laughs) What or who or what is the you that decides to throw the apple? What are you constituted of? What is the self you refer to that is causal? How is it causal? He replies, the I is the body which, impelled by the mind, consciousness, made the motions of throwing the apple in the air. So, I said, you believe that mind slash consciousness is ontologically different from the brain? If not, as most atheists don't, the quote-unquote decision to throw the apple is merely the laws of nature acting. And the quote-unquote self is an illusion. The same natural laws that cause the apple to fall are operative with only an appearance of free will. Where is free will in a naturalist worldview? How do you measure it? This is the point I want to keep pressing on. I'm not sure uh, free will can't be measured, at least not in the way by which we measure the length of a table. I don't see the necessity of measuring free will, to be frank. I also don't see how, even if determinism as understood in psychology was true, that would somehow make the existence of a deity more plausible. I think that the idea of free will can only make sense if God does not exist. God as understood in Christianity and Vaishnavism. I reply, please explain how free will exists in a naturalist worldview. You have taken the position that mind, consciousness, has causal efficacy. That is not a naturalist, atheist argument, but rather a supernaturalist, spiritualist argument. Natural influences can be measured. Those that are thought to be beyond the natural world, but nonetheless influence it, cannot. Determinism does not make a deity more plausible. As I have explained, it is an alternative that a naturalist must accept. Once you have done so, clamoring for moral justice makes little sense from the absolute perspective. Life has no overarching meaning. Natural laws do what they do. That's why Dawkins, true to his own worldview, admits that there is no real difference between rape and anything we might deem good. So, there are problems with either worldview. In other words, I'm not trying to solve the problem of evil. I'm just saying, okay, that's a problem. Hmm? But the worldview you've accepted has problems. Which one do you is more tiresome or troublesome? Hmm? But uh, so there are problems with either worldview. But theism does posit ultimate meaning and free will that we intuit exists, even while it cannot explain the ways of God to everyone's satisfaction. Swamiji, theism, as far as I can understand, is the antithesis of the concept of free will because it deprives the concept of any meaning. A deity who who can see the future cannot be said to have have given his creation free will, at least as far as the Western tradition understands it. So he wants to argue that that theism can't have free will because God knows everything. But I know, my point again is is that that naturalism, metaphysical naturalism, 
its position is that there's no free will. In theism, the position is there is free will, and there's this compatibilism between the two, determinism and free will. I reply, free will is a tenant of Gaudiya Vedanta, which takes a compatibilist position embracing both free will and determinism, but that is not really the point here. The point is that naturalism leaves no room for free will. Only natural laws are operative. So, even theoretically, it does not accept free will. Vedanta says consciousness is causal. Kartritva has agency. It's a doer. And ontologically, it is different and independent of matter. I do not claim to be able to explain the free will of the jiva to all concerned, but I can explain the logic of a supernatural self and by extension a god in a compelling, logical, and contemporary manner. Swamiji, let's say for the sake of argument that the Vedantic compatibilist view is true, how does that justify belief in a deity who allows millions of people to die in a tsunami? It's one thing to say that because humans have free will, God cannot be held responsible if X robs S. However, there can be no excuse for a deity not to prevent the suffering of innocent people such as those who were struck by a recent earthquake in China. So he's moved away from the rapist position now to the major calamities. Again, I do not claim to be able to explain the ways of God and what is really happening when we perceive other suffering. What the background is, what the previous karma is, what's... We don't claim to be able to sort all that out necessarily. Krishna admits in the Gita that it's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. What I have said is, I've made that clear from the beginning. What I have said is that naturalism slash atheism explains explains such suffering in a manner that brings up larger problems and makes the concern for those who suffer much less meaningful than theism does. You understand? If you're all so concerned about the suffering, the, the, the naturalistic worldview is not a good one to embrace. Hmm? There's no value. There's no value, there's no real meaning. It, it, it's, uh, theism gives you real meaning to want to end suffering, if that's what you're really interested in. But he's not, of course. He's just, as I say, sharpening his, his, uh, his sword here. Um, what I have said is that naturalism explains such suffering in a manner that brings up larger problems and makes the concern for those who suffer much less meaningful than theism does. So one has to choose between the two worldviews and the problems that come with them, the, the logical problems, which we resolve by saying the transcendence is exactly that. It transcends logic and reasoning. There are things beyond reason. Everything doesn't have to answer to reason. We're comfortable with that. Hmm? If you think there's nothing that transcends reason, everything has to fit within reason, you've got problems. We don't have the same problems. We don't have the same headache you have. Everything doesn't have to fit within reason. Hmm? So, one has to choose between the two worldviews and the problems that come with them. In the end, if one is truly concerned with the suffering of others, one should do something about it. Denying theism doesn't help much. And many theists are actively involved in tendering to the suffering of the world. They are very motivated to do so. So that in itself is cause to encourage theism if you want to alleviate suffering. Now the typical reply, Swamiji, there are many humanist charities, such as doctors without borders, do as much work as theistic charities. That does not mean that we should advocate a certain worldview over another solely because one does more philanthropic activities. Of course, that's supposed to be his concern that people are suffering. I think the hardest problem with your position, from my point of view, is the idea that God has a will that is not understood by humans. <laughs> if God is completely understood by humans, what, 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 what kind of God is that? Hmm? <laughs> Wrapped up in the in the in, in he, fist he of the intellect of the humans. He has his nose. He can't be understood by cockroaches. Right. 
Exactly. We'll get to that too. I think that in itself, he says, I think that in itself makes theism irrational compared to metaphysical naturalism, which posits that everything that exists must be careful, ca- capable of verification. Whoa. Yes, I realize that humanism helps others in some instances. Some humanists are philanthropic. But if it is theism that works for some and motivates them to help as well, why discourage it? If you want to end suffering. Furthermore, it remains to be seen if metaphysical naturalism were to become the dominant worldview, whether it would be a greater motivator for acts of kindness than theism. In other words, the fact that some theists are philanthropic, humanists or naturalists are philanthropic, doesn't mean that if we took out theism and did away with it, the world would be more philanthropic. There's every reason to believe it would be less philanthropic. And there are many hard problems with the logic and science of metaphysical naturalism. To say that consciousness is not causal is a preformative contradiction. In other words, the denial of the self is irrational in the strongest sense because it involves claiming something that is at odds with the presuppositions or implications of the act of claiming it, mm-hmm. and thus it is self-refuting. You follow? Mm-hmm. It requires, con- in other words, it requires consciousness or self in order to deny consciousness or self. One can no more deny the foundational causal role of consciousness than one can rationally say, I am dead. That makes no sense. So to deny consciousness as being foundational when it requires consciousness to make, do the, engage in the act of denial is irrational. Later he'll talk a little bit about the argument from contingency, which is an old argument, um, in which it came up in a debate, I think, for the, came up in a debate between Russell, Bertrand Russell in the 40s or whenever it was, and a, and a theist, a Catholic, I think, uh, Cardinal Bishop or something. It was a famous debate. Just just to show us the same debate just going on again and on, on for forever. And Russell made the point that he could not accept a, a, a non-contingent entity. The argument is that if there are contingent entities, entities that are dependent, that, are, that whose existence is contingent, hmm, then there must be a, a non-contingent entity, ultimately. In other words, all existence in this world appears to be contingent on one thing or another, therefore, into itself it has no independent meaning. Therefore, the argument is that there must be a contingent uh, being. Russell said at one point, I don't accept that there is a need for a contingent being unless it is self-contradictory to deny one. That's our argument about consciousness. It's self-contradictory to deny it. Consciousness is not not contingent. It's causal from the Gita's perspective, independent of the world. Anyway, I said, so, um, one can no more deny the foundational, causal role of consciousness than one can rationally say, I am dead. Furthermore, if the objective world mattered independently of consciousness, who would know and who would care? The knower, he who cares, matters. And a real self can rarely care. Swamiji, I think that if we were to claim that it is morally acceptable to believe a lie, then we would be compromising objective truth. Okay. I don't want to discourage theists from doing charitable works. He's saying theism is a lie. So it's morally wrong to accept it. I don't want to discourage theists from saying that their God is the reason why they do nice things instead of acting out of natural kindness. 
whatever that is. Metaphysical naturalism is what I consider the honest path to morality because it does not reply on any divine commands. I reply, metaphysical naturalism is just a belief system, not an objective truth. He says, I don't see how it can be called a belief system. Belief, as I understand it, is synonymous with faith, which is subjective. Well, metaphysical naturalism is not supported by empirical evidence. It, if, it was the biggest, if it was, the biggest argument in human society for centuries would be over. It is a faith based on a particular interpretation of empirical evidence. Yes, it is subjective, not an objective, falsifiable worldview. It is full of beliefs, like consciousness is reducible to matter. I suggested to read a book named, I said, Read Irreducible Mind. It's a book that, a contemporary book that deals with the subject to some extent. He says, There are many respected neuroscientists who affirm psychophysical reductionism. In other words, he doesn't realize that what he's saying is that there are some neuroscientists that believe mm-hmm. that that consciousness is, is reducible to, to, to brain. If they could demonstrate it, you know, they'd win more than a Nobel Prize, uh, that we would be have proven that we're automatons, which makes no sense because we're not. <laughs> he says, not that it really helps my case or anything, but if there was a triomni god, could the said deity make two and two... Two plus two equal five? Childish. I reply, you mean those neuroscientists interpret evidence in a particular way that they feel confident supports the theory that consciousness is reducible to the brain. That again is a belief system. If there were empirical evidence that conclusively demonstrated that consciousness is nothing more than a brain, it would be the biggest story in the history of humanity. The fact that there is no such evidence and nothing close to it, the fact is there is no such evidence and nothing close to it. Believe me, I'm well read on the subject. Or read up on it yourself. I've suggested one book. You can also read the work of respected physicist Henry Stapp as a suggestion. Swamiji, there's no such thing as conclusive empirical evidence. Empirical empiricism relies upon induction, which is subject to change. I mean, it makes no sense. I'm saying the induction is the interpretation of the evidence. So, you have empirical evidence, you interpret it one way, we interpret it another way. Both interpretations are reasonable. The evidence doesn't conclusively support one interpretation. Then, why would God do that if the deity already made two plus two equal four? It's not about why, but if such a God could do that. Then I go on, yes, but you don't understand that metaphysical naturalism is a worldview that has not been demonstrated to be objectively true. If it had been, the brain argument would be over. It's far from over. He says, that is what makes philosophy so interesting and worth studying. (laughs) like science there's always new information being discovered nonetheless they're looking for a conclusive answer to the question is consciousness part of the brain working hard for it they haven't found it I said that's fine but that does not make metaphysical naturalism an objective truth it's a belief and you imply that religion offers no new information. That is not true. Study theology. It is just as full of new insights as philosophy, unhinged from revelation. Swamiji, theology is a closed discipline. First, it presupposes the existence of a theos. Second, it relies upon authority. Philosophy does not. 
I replied, metaphysical naturalism is a closed discipline. <laughs> First, it presupposes a biological makeup to consciousness. Second, it relies on authority of peer review. He replies, there is a difference. First, peer review is not the same thing as a guru or lineage. One can challenge the findings of peer reviewers. Theology does not allow for unrestricted challenges to authority. Another point which I would like to make is that a philosopher can be a theist, or an atheist, or a skeptical theist. A theologian can only be the first kind. What? He says, another point I would like to make is that a theist, that a philosopher can be a theist, or an atheist, or a skeptical theist. Whereas, a theologian can only be a theist. Where's the evidence for that? Well, anyway, here's what I said. For the first argument, that there's a difference between peer review and, and some guru lineage and where you can't challenge uh, the, unrestrictedly the, the lineage and so on and so forth. I said there's not as much difference as you think. Thus, for example, there are various forms of Vedanta that arose out of challenging authority. Do you understand? There's Dvaita Vedanta, Shishta Dvaita, Dvaita Dvaita. It's a huge theological argument. There's revelation, and uh, that's your peer-reviewed you know, data, so to speak. And then we argue about it, and what it means, and what the implications of it are, and so on and so forth. There's so much for thinking. I mean, um, from... Uh, so, thus, for example, there are various forms of Vedanta that arose out of challenging authority. From the huge challenge to Advaita came Vishishtadvaita, etc. And an atheist can only be an atheist philosopher. <laughs> so, but I'm really not interested in debating with an atheist tonight. I've had plenty of such discussion and I'm well thought out on my position. Thanks anyway for thinking of me. Thanks for your time. I, he says, though I must admit I am a little disappointed that you did not address the main concern, which is why a triomni deity would allow natural disasters to cause suffering. I did address it, I reply. I said, I don't know why. <laughs> Some things are a mystery, and right now, within metaphysical naturalism, consciousness is a mystery. It cannot be adequately explained. Still, you believe in it. He replies, That reminds me of why Christa's cornea principle, which essentially states that God allows suffering, but we can never know why. Argument from ignorance, he says. I reply. I guess that applies to metaphysical naturalism school of mysterium as well, which says that we humans are not equipped to understand consciousness. And there is nothing within, evolu- within evolutionary theory that should lead one to believe that humans are equipped to understand everything. Like you were saying, cockroaches don't understand us. There's nothing within evolutionary theory if you accept it. It says humans are supposed to be able to understand everything. So to say that there are things we don't understand is not a, it's an argument from ignorance. He says, I'm saying that humans are equipped to understand everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, excuse me. I'm not saying that humans are equipped to understand everything. But, however, we are capable of understanding the origins of the universe. <laughs> I thought I said this would be a little fun. I reply, uh, we're capable of theorizing about the origins, but we have not yet proved capable of understanding them. And even if we could, and proved it to originate in God's mind, there is no reason to conclude that we should therefore have the ability to understand everything about God's mind. Swamiji, I know 
I think most physicists will agree that we do not yet understand everything about the universe. Great. Thanks for that. However, that's no reason to reject naturalism. So he's not really being real honest in the argument here. No, I reply, but there are plenty of other reasons to reject metaphysical naturalism. I already cited a number of them. He says, even if metaphysical naturalism is false, that does not make theism any more likely to be true. I said, if you think there are no good reasons to reject metaphysical naturalism, we have nothing more to discuss. And to me, you would appear very unreasonable and irrational to have reached that conclusion. As to your point that even if metaphysical naturalism is false, that does not make theism any more likely to be true. I never said that it did, but it is the main alternative in the marketplace of contemporary thought. Have a nice day. He's not done. No. Then I, I sent him some. Here's something you should find interesting. It's a it's a, a video about cosmological arguments for the existence of the, for for God being the origin of the universe. I thought, you know, view this. It's an hour long. I'll get rid of it. He says, Swamiji, any video that contains the voice of William Lane Craig is bound to be anything but interesting. William Lane Craig is a kind of a evangelical theologian. He's a very, very well-educated man, a very good debater. I don't particularly like his theology, but he's, he's, a, he's, he's a good, he's a challenge, for sure. He says, any video, and his voice is, is one of the voices, apparently, in the video. I didn't even watch the whole video. I just watched part of it. This would be good for the guy. Swamiji, any video that contains the voice of William Lane Craig is bound to be anything but interesting. I reply, it would be interesting to see how well you would do in a debate, in a debate against him. So this is some, some guy you know, who's you know, challenging everybody. He's never been in a situation where he actually has to deal with all the arguments head on. Personally, I don't care much for his theology, but your comments about him are telling. And his is only one of the many voices on the video. He replies, if you search Facebook philosophers page you'll see he's held in low regard by most amateur and professional philosophers. The column argument is one of the worst cosmological arguments a theist can use in a debate. The column argument is is that something cannot come out of nothing. Therefore, there has to be... The the caused world, the the world of... something. Anyway, something cannot cannot come out of nothing. Um, so anyway, I replied, there is a bias everywhere in the world. Better to deal, like you have a bias towards this, this, this particular guy. And he does voice the cosmological argument, which is an old, old theistic argument that still has credibility today. Some people don't like it, but other people do. Let's, again, let's go back to the stalemate. There is a bias everywhere in the world. Better to deal with what Craig actually says than merely engaging in character assassination. It's not character assassination. He is deceitful. If he is deceitful, he also recently made several podcasts about a movie he has never seen. So what? Uh, Is character assassination deceitful rather than to deal with his arguments? Swamiji... Anybody with a little philosophical training can take down his arguments. I don't have the time, the patience to deal with swindlers like him. That's apart from a swindler. Uh, You mean to say you don't have answers to his arguments or to those other speakers on the video, but you have time to speak with an uneducated person like myself? Because the people on the video are, are much more educated than me. He says, at least I don't use pirated audio. At least you don't use pirated audio, audio as your sources, I hope. I don't even know what he's talking about, but you know, it's, just, it's a silly argument, really, of character assassination of this one guy on the tape. What can I, uh, I said, you're being quite petty. 
He says, what can I say? We know from science that things pop into existence uncaused, so his arguments are unsound. Little thing known as spontaneous generation. Also, if everything which exists has a cause, then it follows. God must have a cause. Well, this is an argument against the idea that something cannot come out of nothing. The argument for spontaneous generation. But it's it's there's some way of looking at some things within the natural world that cause one to believe there is some form of spontaneous generation in a very isolated circumstance. To say from that, therefore the world has been spontaneously generated, just this like huge stretch. Hmm? So it's not really considered by people who make the cosmological argument a sound refutation. So he's just voicing a particular refutation that people who make the argument don't necessarily agree with and have replies to, and it goes on and on and on. So, so I said, that's a very silly argument. It is dealt with by, uh, well, by a number of speakers in the video. I suggest that you watch it. You could learn something that is obvious from your comment, especially the comment. Also, if everything which exists has a cause, then it follows that God must also have a cause. That doesn't follow at all. The argument is that the universe uh, is, is thought to be caused, even in science. But that doesn't mean that we're, we're defining God as an uncaused cause. In the first place, uh, whereas everyone agrees that the universe has a cause. Well, not everybody. Some people say it's eternal. We say that too. I'm going to go into all of that. So he says the open. Then he, I guess he open, looks at it a little bit. The opening part of the video seems to be like creationist propaganda, not an objective analysis. Analysis. I say anyway. If you didn't find it interesting, so be it. I'm kind of trying to get rid of the guy. Can you give me a can you give me a syllogism? He says in support of the cosmological argument. I said no. I'm not interested in that. So you're not into analytical analytical theology philosophy. I replied, no, not today. May I ask how old you are? Because I'm starting to think this guy's like childish. He says I can give you one syllogism. One, if the universe has a purpose, quote, uh, inherent meaning, then God exists. Two, the universe has no purpose. Three, therefore God does not exist. Then he says, It's not a valid syllogism. Then he says, I'm 23. (laughs) I said, thank you. I learned a lot from that, especially the last sentence. Good luck. So, he's 23 years old, you know. He thinks he knows everything. He's, you know, he... And the mystical naturalist, atheism has been proven, and so forth. It's just really childish. He says, "Glad you enjoyed it." And I'm familiar with Koppelstun's argument from contingency, so I know my way around the field, so to speak. That's the argument I referred to earlier. It's another earlier. It's another version of the um, cosmological argument. Um, if you want a syllogism, I guess we could give one. We could say, um, "What's a syllogism?" It's, it's an analytical. What would you call it? Logic. Mm-hmm. If you have this, you make a proposition. This, this, and therefore this. That's a syllogism. Well, that's not even a syllogism. Syllogism is this big category. This smaller part of that. This smaller category is part of that. Therefore, that such. I mean, you don't say, it's not an if and then is a whole different logical operation from a syllogism. But that wasn't a a valid syllogism would be, how does his syllogism go? His goes, if the universe has a purpose, then God exists. The universe has no purpose, therefore God does not exist. 
So the logical syllogism would be if the universe would be the universe has no purpose. No. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it has, anyway, it's 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 not. I mean, it's not logically where, where, valid. Where's the logical? That the universe has no purpose. I mean, is he, has he taken symbolic logic? He just made that up. Yeah. In other words, if the universe has a purpose, then God exists. One, two. The universe has no purpose. Hold on. Who, who says it has no purpose? Three. Therefore, God does not exist. I would give it. Let's try this for a syllogism. Experience cannot come out of non-experience. Matter is non-experiential. Consciousness is experiential. All forms of matter, so matter and consciousness are ontologically different. Three. Four. Matter, all forms of matter are governed by time and space and are therefore not eternal. Five. Consciousness being ontologically different from matter, is not governed by time and space, and therefore eternal. I'd have to write it out. Yeah, that's, not a, that's a chain, of, that's a logical chain. But his wasn't a anyway. Anyway, so it was a little fun. And uh, it's, I just wanted to show you there was a particular way in which I chose to take the argument, and I think it's a useful and constructive way to, this is the real um, weak point I believe the weakest point in metaphysical naturalism or physicalism or modern atheism, materialism would be another name for it. Um, and incidentally, the terms physicalism, naturalism are expanded terms um, from the original term of materialism because more things keep getting, have to be included, hmm? like material forces, and, you know, and so it's a very, I, the fact that materialism is now called physicalism or, or, or naturalism means that it's, it's, it, it's failing, just like they make arguments, well, okay, so you believed in this, now in God, now you're changing that because you found this fact out, you know, you're altering your, your, your theology to some extent and so forth. As new information comes, which we do to an extent, obviously, um, but the same thing is going on within um, a materialistic worldview. But um, the weak point I want to say is this idea that consciousness is reducible to matter, to causes, to consciousness is not foundational, not causal. It's a very weak point, and it, it won't be. You won't find a place in the brain that is that is uh, is uh, consciousness and the experience of self that I'm a, that I exist as an entity and so forth. So, um, and then it, and if you do it as I did it, you, you, for most people you can just turn it to well, you know let's play out the implications. He tried to play out the implications of a worldview in which there was God and there was suffering. That in his mind um, mandated that there could not be a God. He couldn't live with the idea that there's a God. Well, can you live with this idea then? And does that solve the suffering, you see? And that, and that you and you are meaningless. And our conversation has no meaning. Hmm? There's no meaning to our conversation than, than raindrops falling on the, on, on the roof. The sound of that. Is that how you live your life you can't live your life like that you don't live your life like that it's, 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 the, it's the madness really that comes from unhinging philosophy from, from revelation and just letting the mind go wild and you think yourself out of existence I mean it, it's so very convoluted and impractical it's a talk that nobody can walk it's um it's uh, counterintuitive to the extreme on a universal scale. All humans intuitively um, function as if 
they think and then they, they do it. There's a mind and it's consciousness, causal, it's informing it. And, and action and so on and so forth. Marsh, yeah? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, he, um, I think, unwittingly stepped right into that one when he made his little argument about language being, you know, a mental construct and meaningless and everything. So, what are we conducting this discussion yeah. with, if not? And, and that's why I said he might as well, he might as well be passing that you know. Right. What's that? It's, 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 you know, there is no meaning to it, there's no, and there's no meaning to you. And, and there is no suffering. And there, it's yeah, just a word. No there is no you, and there is no suffering. It's just a word. Yeah. Why did he say the, the part when he said language is a human construct? I didn't get why that was so funny. I mean, why it didn't make any sense. Why, why you said what you said after him saying that. Because he was saying, everything I'm saying is absolutely meaningless. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it has no more meaning than the wind blowing through the trees or... Without really understanding what he was saying. Yeah, he wasn't listening to himself. I have another question. Yeah. Uh, can you give an example of how theism changes? You said we do do that to a certain extent. Well, it changes. Um, um, well, I gave one example. Like, for example, there was Shankar's Advaita. And then you've got, for example, Madhva's Dwaita. It's the opposite. They're looking at the same text, same revelation, and uh, they're interpreting it differently and so forth. There's a the common ground that they have. They both say that they're consciousness and different from matter and so forth, the nature of, the, of, of, of ultimate reality and so forth, they're debating about. Um, so, as far as, then as far as changes, let's say, for example, um, um, let's say, for example, you think that the Bhagavatam was written uh, 5,000 years ago by Vyasadeva. Okay? Let's say someone proved that it was written by a couple of people in the 6th century. There are arguments like that in, in, in the academic world. They argue that Bhagavatam was probably written about the 6th century because they look at the Sanskrit from previous times and the Sanskrit of that time and they make an argument like that and so on and so forth. And um, and so, Bhaktivinoda Thakur, um, at the turn of the, what, the 20th century, was dealing with modern thought and, um, in relation to Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And he understood that there was an argument and the logic of it and what empirical, uh, observable evidence was available in support of the theory that the Bhagavatam was written in the 6th century. Hmm? And so, you know, that's a lot earlier, or a lot later, I should say, than 5,000 years ago. And, and and it's not this one guy, Vyas, who writes it all, and, you know, and so on and so forth, which is uh, an, an ancient belief. It's, it's, it can be our belief now, too. I mean, that's not a problem. It's, it's, that's just a theory, and it's not by any stretch conclusive and there are many replies to it if you want to maintain the older argument. Bhaktivinoda response was we don't we can maintain it or we don't we don't have to maintain it. It doesn't really matter. Our concern is what the Bhagavatam is saying in the here and now, what its arguments are, what its position is, what its theology is. In other words, we don't really care who wrote it. You could say the wrote it or not, it doesn't really matter to us. Hmm? We find it to be, from a theological point of view, the most sophisticated, rich, um, and complex theology that 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 resonates with human experience. Hmm? Is our belief, our feeling, our sense of it more than any other, and we pursue it. Hmm? So he was willing to concede, but possibly we can't prove ours. So possibly we'll entertain, but it doesn't change our position at all. Hmm? So that would be okay. Let's say previously that wouldn't have been, you know, um, something that anybody would have said. If Vyas wrote it, 
Now there's new evidence. Maybe he didn't write it. We can't prove this. Okay. Maybe there's evidence that it's been one way of dealing. There may be other things like that. Hmm? Um, <coughs> but it still has to be um, revelation. Yes. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's it just doesn't matter who it's revealed to. Hmm? Yeah. We say it's you know it's it's it's, it's come, and at least you say it's coming from um, realized people who, and they write about it and here's nothing then they write about it in a certain cultural context employ metaphors from that time and things that were thought to be true materially for example at the time they draw on um, as analogies to make points let's say according to the examination of the physical world at the time, a certain thing was thought to take place. Hmm? And so they might use an analogy of that thing to make a philosophical point. Draw an analogy of, just like in the world this happens, and therefore that happens. Similarly, we make this philosophical point. Well, let's say in time we find out that that idea that this happens in the world because of this wasn't true. Hmm? Okay, but that doesn't do away with the, the point that we're making. It just does away with an analogy that we're using to make the point. Hmm? So we come up with an analogy in today's world to make the point. So there may be instances like that where the Bhagavad invokes an analogy, a cultural analogy, or a primitive, pre-scientific kind of analogy to make a point. The larger point is, what is the point that they're making? Hmm? And we can dismiss the the, the the accuracy of the analogy. It's just like we say, well, you know, um, if the sun uh, flies across the sky every day, and when it goes across the sky and sets you know, from the east to the, rise in the east and goes to the west, uh, you know, um, uh, our, our life is being taken away. And somebody says, and I've given this example before, and somebody says, well, mommy, the sun really doesn't move across the sky. It's the earth that's going around. And I say, well, kaboom. Yeah. The point is, we're dying. That's the point. You know, this is a poetic way, you could say, of saying it, or a pre-scientific way of thinking about it. But the core tenets, and that's why it's important to know the core tenets, the essential spiritual idea. And it's, it's, it's worth pointing out, for example, that if you, if you look at Ramanuja's philosophy, you look at Madhva's philosophy, you'll find many things that go to Vaishnavas and we go, what? What are they talking about? How can you do it like that? Hmm? So they, are, they constitute different ways of talking about something that we, in, 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 in the end, actually agree with. Hmm? And different ways of arriving at it, also. The sadhana, the practice, in those different sampradayas is very different. Of course, then again, where we want Goloka, that's another thing. They, for example, want Vaikuntha. And that doesn't mean that we see, oh God, you could attain love of God through Ramanuja's way, or you could attain it through Gaudiya way. And within those two ways, there are contradictions. Hmm? Therefore, obviously, God's being made up. Hmm. No, it, it's just the opposite. Hmm? That those are some, there are some relativities to the way. There's more than one way, something like that, to attaining. Hmm? And it doesn't give us reason to make less of our particular siddhanta. If I say, this is the siddhanta, sometimes it goes, well, you know, here's the Ramanuja siddhanta. And we get the Vaikuntha by that, or you get the Vaikuntha by yours. Hmm? We, we don't say, we don't say, we say you do, we don't say you don't get there. But we're not so adamant about our siddhanta to say, only by our siddhanta can you get the Vaikuntha. Of course, we say only by our siddhanta can you get the Goloka, which and Brajalila, which they're not even talking about. But let's say our siddhanta on Vaidhi Bhakti, to go to Vaikuntha, we also have that argument. We have a certain way of going about it, and we say, if you don't do it like this, it's not, that's wrong, that's not the siddhanta, and so forth. We make a big point of it. Some say, well, what's the big point? Over here they do it different. It's different, not your Siddhanta. And still they go to Vaikuntha. 
So why should we get all concerned about the Siddhanta? Because we are in a particular path, and we want to know the Siddhanta in our path, and it's useful because our sadhus who have gone there have used this. These are empowered ways of talking about it for going there. We should know and we should go there. We don't just dismiss it because there's a different Siddhanta that can take you there. We don't argue it to the point of becoming fanatical and saying, well, they can't go there by their Siddhanta. Within reason, of course, within, within, within parameters. Do you follow? So there's the fact that there's some relativity to our philosophy and to our practice, which we say, you have to do it like this, Prabhu. Hmm? Still, we admit there's some relativity to it. There's not relativity to it if you want to do it in the Gaudiya Vaishnava way. Hmm? You have to do it the Gaudiya Vaishnava way. If you want to be a Gaudiya Vaishnava, and, 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 and if you don't, then, then, you go, then what are you going to do? Just pick and choose what you want here. And then you don't have an empowered, so to speak, system given by great souls who have attained the destination. Hmm? How they speak about Krishna Lila and so forth. That's very, although we say that the experience of Lila transcends even that, it's beyond the words. Still, those are empowered words and descriptions that have power in them hmm? that we want to take advantage of. To say that they're limited descriptions, therefore we should dismiss them as wrong. They're limited descriptions, and that the subject is beyond description. Hmm? But they're empowered limited descriptions that we would do well just to embrace as if they were not limited. Hmm? By embracing them in that way, we get all the power from them. Hmm? And we succeed in transcending the limits of reason and thought and so forth. Follow? Is it good? Arguing goes nowhere. And especially when you're arguing with someone who's not trained. The guy's not trained in philosophy. Right. Because it's a basic thing. But what his, his proposition was, if God exists, the world has meaning. The world has no meaning, therefore God does not exist. Yeah. So the structure of that is, if A, then B, not B, therefore not A. But that's not logically valid. If it's if A then B and it's not A, then not B logically follows. But if you say if A then B not B, it doesn't mean that A is not true. It just means that B is not true. There can be another ex- other explanation for the world not having meaning. Say B C is right. Anyway, I mean, the guy, the guy, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's acting like he's some kind of right. atheistic philosopher or something, but he's... Um, That's why I started thinking this point, this is just a kid here, you know, yeah. sorry you guys are kids too, from my point of view, I'm almost be a grandpa, but, um, you know, 23. it makes a difference, you know, guy reads a few arguments and... I'm 23 and I dropped out of Fordham Community College. And he thinks he's answered all the big, you know, all of the questions and... In, uh, the biggest questions in, in, in life, and they were there. They are. People don't agree with them. Are fools, you know. So that's about as foolish a position as you could possibly take. That twenty-three going on fifteen. Okay, well, how was your day? Good. Got something done. Learned something. Got some sunscar for bhakti. Start again in the morning. See, see, go to the Monday day.